hidden out of sight and usually out of mind on the northeast coast of England is a city that was once a vibrant port to northern Europe. Now, it's not much of anything. The reason I say, and you've probably never heard of it, it's called Hull. Uh, the reason I'm confident you've never heard of it is that I've barely heard of it and I lived there for three years. <laughs> It has a second-tier professional football club and a third-tier university, which is why I lived there for three years. One of God's geographical jokes was to place Hull in blissful isolation near the end of a very wide estuary called the Humber. It is so remote that even though it is home to 284,000 people with an extremely rare accent, the only reason you would go to Hull is to go to Hull. And you'd only go to Hull if you had nowhere else to go. Unless you are a civil engineer. Because Hull has one astonishing, breathtaking, mesmerising claim to fame. For 16 glorious years from 1981, which includes the three years I was an undergraduate there, Hull was home to the world's longest single-span suspension bridge. I can see you're impressed. Uh, uh, That is a bridge with just two towers from which is suspended a road. It's still there, but it's no longer the longest in the world. The Humber Bridge traverses the Humber Estuary, and it is 1.4 miles long. How big is this bridge? Well, I'm glad you asked. The two towers of the Humber Bridge are 510 feet tall. The road is suspended by 44,000 miles of cable. It is designed to bend more than 10 feet, which it does when the wind reaches 80 miles an hour. But listen to this. The Humber Bridge is so big that the two towers, although both vertical, are 1.3 inches further apart at the top than the bottom due to the curvature of the earth. (laughs) That's how big the Humber Bridge is. Now the train in and out of Hull actually passes underneath one end of the bridge and I used to travel on that line several times a year and from about 10 miles away you can start to see this phenomenon approaching. While on the train I would people watch and in particular try to spot who was a visitor to Hull. Uh, They were actually pretty easy to identify. As the bridge approached the locals would just carry on reading or snoozing or drinking their tea but the visitors were hypnotised because nothing can prepare you for the Humber Bridge. So they would stare wide-eyed and loose-jawed say. Ooh, ah, they said as they made their way out of the dazzling temple in Jerusalem into the blazing sun. 
It bounced off the white limestone walls, a fitting symbol of God's splendour dwelling inside that holiest of holy buildings. Never in its 500-year history had God's house looked more magnificent than that afternoon. And you, a traveller with Jesus and his twelve followers, pause to drink in the sheer magnitude of this superhuman feat of engineering. The smallest stones in the temple weigh two or three tons. Some weigh 50. The largest, the western stone, is 44 feet wide, 11 feet high, 16 feet thick, and weighs 600 tons. Maybe the heaviest object ever lifted by human beings without powered machinery. As you stand and gaze up at these walls, some of them 160 feet high, you are transfixed. Your brain is fried by the dimensions. The interior floor measures 45 acres, that's 25 football fields. At Passover, when pilgrims flock here from all over, a quarter of a million people fit inside. So when one of the twelve turns to Jesus and says, Ooh, ah, look, teacher, what large stones and what magnificent buildings, you nod in agreement, as anyone would. But Jesus' response offends you. He's had a stressful day, a day of tension and conflict. We read about some of it last week. He had crossed swords with the scribes. He had parried their thrusts, dodged their lunges, and finally turned their attacks on themselves. Then he bathed in the rejuvenating grace of God as it flowed from that widow, the one who gave almost nothing but also gave everything. But having a stressful day is no excuse for Jesus' shocking reply. You see these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. You can't believe what you're hearing. This building is more than just one of the ancient wonders of the world. This temple represents everything your people hold dear. This is the dwelling place of God. This is the focal point of the religion begun 2,000 years ago when God called Abraham to be the father of many nations. It is the sign of the faith hammered on the anvil of slavery in Egypt, baked under the desert sun with Moses, exalted in the reign of David, purified by the prophets, almost choked to death by exile in Babylon, but now glorified in this monumental testimony to the faithfulness of God and the homeland of Israel. This is the throne at the heart of this land of milk and honey. You see these great buildings? They'll all be thrown down. No, Jesus, you're talking like a crazy person. God would never let that happen to his temple. Let's fast forward 40 years to 70 AD, still within the lifetime of many of the people milling around the temple that day. 
an ambitious but hopelessly naive group of Jewish nationalists lead a revolt against the might of imperial Rome. The result is depressingly predictable and devastatingly brutal. In retaliation, Rome destroys the temple, leaving nothing but ruins. When General Titus, who led the mission to destroy the temple, was offered the traditional wreath of victory by the Roman Senate, he refused it, saying, There is no glory in destroying a people whose God has forsaken them. You see these great buildings? They'll all be thrown down. How can the Jewish Messiah be so anti-temple? A couple of days earlier, he trashes the place. Now he prophesies its destruction as he leaves. Well, maybe Jesus has seen so much corruption in his religion and its self-absorbed leadership that he has given up on this symbol of God's presence. Maybe he is hungering for signs of something authentic, fed up with the big show, sick of the hypocrisy, driven beyond endurance by the sham, the greed, the grandiosity of oversized egos in places of power. Maybe he leaves the temple that afternoon despairing that the one truly beautiful, truly authentic act of faith he had witnessed that day, that widow and the ting of her two copper coins had been swamped by the clunk of fake religion. You see these great buildings? We adore the big show, don't we? We religious types love to say to Jesus, Lord, look at our beautiful building. See how big we are. Marvel at our programs, our new members, our thriving ministries. You see these great buildings? Jesus, let me show you our attendance numbers. Look at the lovely upward curve on this graph. Lord, did I tell you about our growing budget? And how about our mission projects? Uh, You know, Lord, our community is so much better because we are here. You do see these great buildings, don't you? You know, Jesus, people are impressed with us. Go to the coffee shop, hang out at the school gates, listen to the conversations in the denominational headquarters. It's us they're talking about, Lord. We are bringing you so much glory. You see these great buildings? What I desire, says Jesus, is the humble heart and the broken spirit, the life of love, the gift of grace. The spirit of service, the motive of kindness, the the perfume of peace, the aroma of God. What I yearn for from my people is that you would forget yourselves, die to your pride, love me and love your neighbour. Don't be like those religious leaders of old. Give me truth, not show. Depth, not shallowness. Authenticity, not ostentation. Today is Celebration Sunday. 
we draw to a close our annual stewardship campaign with gratitude for each other and for all of God's gifts. It has been a season in which we have heard of grand visions and great plans. You've read the report, you've studied the goals, you've heard some of us talk passionately about the future God is creating for us. Oh, but this gospel reading makes me shiver. I get nervous when I hear Jesus. You do see these great buildings, right? I ask myself, what good will it do if we have a record-breaking stewardship campaign and are fully able to fund all our mission for many years to come, but our hearts are in the wrong place? What if we go from strength to strength, growing and flourishing in beautiful ways, but we then proudly congratulate ourselves on being wonderful and forget for whose glory we exist and for whose kingdom we strive? What good will it do us ultimately uh, if we have another 125 years ahead of us of joyful, thriving ministry at the heart of Westfield, but we become self-obsessed instead of God-possessed? So absorbed in our own accomplishments that we have no room for the needs of women and men, boys and girls in our town and county. Today is a day of celebration. It's not guilt Sunday or duty Sunday or even sacrifice Sunday. We are called to rejoice with our hearts and hands and minds, with gusto, with freedom, with abandon. But knowing this, we can't be self-satisfied about it. As if we are the masters of our own future. As if we create greatness. We bring in God's kingdom. May we never view God as our servant. As someone who is there to respond to our formula. That if we apply the right theories, make the smart decisions, then God is obligated to bless our efforts. May our work be done for Christ, in Christ, with Christ, and may it realise the glory of Christ. May we be bold in the way we invest our resources, material and non-material. May we be courageous in the risks we take. But may we never forget that this mission belongs to God, and we merely take part, not arrogantly, but humbly, not owners but stewards. Your clergy and lay leaders commit ourselves to conducting our ministries ethically and with transparency. We shudder at the thought that we could have a grand future in many ways, but at heart be far from God. I fear those words of Jesus. You see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left on another. I once walked across the Humber Bridge. It was terrifying. The footpath is 100 feet above the water. It's narrow. Over one waist-high railing is the speeding traffic. Over the other is a watery grave. It was windy. It always is. But it didn't collapse, 
and I wasn't blown away by a gust. I placed my faith in the people who hold the mystery of this bridge in their hands, and I'm glad I did. Maybe there's the takeaway for us on this celebration morning. We rejoice in God's gifts and we place our faith in the one who holds our mysteries in his hands.